The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. It is characterized by three main things, loss of control using opioids, continued use despite harms or consequences, and use that becomes compulsive. It's really a syndrome characterized by loss of control. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from In the Clinic on Opiate Use Disorder. Joining us is Dr. Jessica Taylor, who's an assistant professor of medicine and an addiction specialist at Boston University School of Medicine. She focuses on the care of people with substance use disorders, HIV, and viral hepatitis. She's the medical director of Faster Paths, a low-barrier substance use disorder bridge clinic, and she directs HIV prevention programs at Boston Medical Center. We think you will learn a great deal about opioid use disorder and the management of this major problem. Jessica, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I really like the in the clinic that uh, you first authored in the annals. And I think it's a really important topic, both for inpatient and outpatient physicians, although we're going to focus a little bit more on outpatient physicians. So let's start out by defining opioid use disorder. Sure. Thanks, Bob. I'm really happy to be here this morning. So when we think about opioid use disorder, as a physician, I operate in the medical model. And so we think about it as, as a condition that can have periods of remission and return to use that is characterized by three main things, loss of control using opioids continued use despite harms or consequences, and use that becomes compulsive. So it's, it's really a syndrome characterized by a loss of control and a lot of chaos surrounding the use and risk. It's interesting. I was a resident in the 70s, and the main opioid use disorder at that time was IV heroin. We saw a lot of complications of IV heroin back then. We didn't really have major ways to treat it, although we did have methadone clinics. But the current wave is really different. And I, I'd like you to talk about what is going on with opioids now and what has us so scared. When we talk about the, the opioid crisis, we really think about it in three waves. And right now we're in wave three, which is, is the scariest of the three. Just to back up a little bit, we think about opioid use disorder starting to take off um, really in the 90s. And at that point, the opioid overdose deaths were highly concentrated around prescribed opioids. And so the, the first wave really centered around prescribed opioids. As prescribing became more, more restrictive or more judicious, what we saw is a much bigger focus on heroin driving opioid overdose deaths and a, you know, a shift to heroin, particularly as, as things like misuse deterrent formulations came out, prescribing really was under more scrutiny. But actually in the last decade, really starting around 2013, 2014 and ramping up 14, 15, 16, illicitly manufactured synthetic opioids have taken over. And these include fentanyl and fentanyl analogs that are incredibly potent. They're inexpensive to produce. They're incredibly potent. 
And the, the most pr problematic aspect of them is that their potency is also variable. So you can get a batch that is 10 times as potent as street level heroin or a hundred times as potent or potentially more. Lots of variability. And that has really driven the overdose deaths that we're seeing. The other aspect of the current wave that is really incredibly terrifying is that we're seeing fentanyl contaminate other substances. So fentanyl has, has nearly wholly penetrated the heroin supply in really many parts of the country. I started practicing at Boston Medical Center in 2016. And at that point, I would see a couple urines a week that had both heroin and fentanyl. And by heroin, I mean opiate positive, as well as fentanyl positive. And then the transition was to about 50-50. And at this point, it is, it is unusual and maybe only once a month that I see a urine tox test that is positive for opiate um, due to heroin use and not also positive for fentanyl. So it has fully penetrated the heroin supply. But what we've also seen is that it's contaminating stimulants. So we are, are seeing unintentional overdose deaths related to use of cocaine, amphetamines. We are also seeing a huge burden of pressed pills, which are counterfeit benzodiazepines, counterfeit stimulant medications that contain fentanyl. Um, and that, that's incredibly risky because oftentimes people aren't intending to use fentanyl and therefore aren't prepared with, with our harm reduction strategies, which are with our overdose prevention tools like naloxone. Many people want to know why we're having this wave. Is this because we prescribed too much opioids back in the 90s and the first part of the century, or is this all because of the street? You know, interesting question. I, I think there's no question that opioid prescribing was probably not as judicious as it needed to be uh, back in the day. I do think, though, as we talk about more precautions around opioid prescribing, we need to be really careful about unintended consequences of very restrictive prescribing of opioids for chronic pain. Um, and we know, for example, that if, if we let the pendulum swing too far back where we're not using opioids appropriately, or especially if we're, if we're cutting patients off that have been stable on, on potentially high doses of opioids long-term, there's huge risk to patients that are living with chronic pain. Um, so I think you know, the prescribing from 10, 15, 20 years ago is certainly a, a part of the story, but not the entire story. And you know, I, I think what we're seeing now is that, that there is a market that is not regulated. Demand certainly exists for opioids um, outside of prescribed settings, but it's also being driven by the fact that we don't, we don't have a safe supply program in this country and we don't have a way for people with opioid use disorder to access opioids that are of known potency, um, of reliable potency, and in a way that's safe. And so, you know, thinking about some of the, the more cutting edge harm reduction strategies, when we looked at our, our collaborators in Canada, for example, I, th I think there are some really exciting tools that are not yet available in the United States that allow, for example, prescribed heroin for people with severe use disorders that have not um, sustained or reached their treatment goals on medications like methadone and buprenorphine that really addresses the, the chaos in the supply and just the risk and unpredictable nature of what people are able to get. If you're doing primary care, every subspecialty wants you to ask questions about their subspecialty. So we, we're not going to be able to try to figure out if everybody's uh, using opioids. What are the clues either for an outpatient practice or when someone's admitted to my service in the hospital? When should we ask about uh, and test for opioid use? Sure, yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I, um, I'm a primary care doc and I have 20 minute visits. And so screening for everything is, is just a really overwhelming proposition. We do have, I'll just mention that we do have very time efficient ways to screen for drug use disorders or alcohol use disorders. I personally like the single item screening questionnaire because it's it's just that, it's, it's a single question and so pretty readily incorporated. 
but I will fully acknowledge that I am not able to screen all of my patients and, and don't think that it's, you know, it's realistic for all hospital medicine providers, all, all outpatient providers to, to do that. I, I think most important is just what you're saying though, is, is considering opioid use disorder in our differential diagnosis. When patients present with complications of the substance use disorder um, or of behaviors related to the substance use disorder, like, like injection drug use or insufflation. And so, you know, those include patients that may present with mood symptoms, um, with certainly sedation or withdrawal symptoms that are not otherwise explained. And I'll just share an anecdote that when I was a trainee, I, I had a patient that had, I think it was five presentations for, for diarrhea that, that was unexplained and ended up being related to opioid withdrawal in the end, but had had presentations spanning an outpatient clinic, spanning an emergency department for intermittent episodes of very severe GI cramping, nausea, diarrhea. That, that was opioid withdrawal. And so, you know, we really, we don't want to miss the opportunity to identify an OUD and offer evidence-based treatment because we have incredibly effective treatments that are life-saving. So I mentioned mood symptoms. Um, I mentioned sedation and withdrawal. I would also mention any, any skin and soft tissue infection or other complications of injection use, which include chronic viral hepatitis, HIV infection, deep tissue infection, like osteomyelitis endocarditis is another very feared complication of injection use. And, you know, certainly overdose. Um, and we, we are unfortunately seeing people present where their first touch with the medical system around their opioid use disorder is with overdose. You know, and then you look back and you, you realize that patients had maybe touched our outpatient clinic, an emergency department, and we'd missed an opportunity to step in, intervene, provide evidence-based treatment, um, provide evidence-based overdose prevention and harm reduction counseling. So I, I really appreciate the focus on getting this right and identifying the opioid use disorder when patients have these, these important touch points. So the patient gets admitted to my service or comes into your clinic and you suspect the possibility of opioid use disorder, although some patients will just flat out tell you mm -hmm. uh, that they need help. If you find out and they didn't come to you uh, telling you that you they had opioid use, you sort of had to drag it out of them. How does the conversation go? How do you start the conversation about treatment? And I'd like to have a sense of your experience of whether people are interested, how often they're interested, how, how often they sort of just say, no, I don't have a problem. I would say in my experience, it really varies depending on which of my clinics I'm in. So I, I do some subspecialty addiction care, including working in a low barrier bridge clinic, which is a, a walk-in and, and also scheduled visit, but, but largely walk-in on-demand model for opioid use disorder treatment and treatment of other substance use disorders. And so in that setting, it's incredibly straightforward. Patients are coming in seeking treatment for their substance use disorder. And, and you know, that's what we talk about and provide. I've certainly also had cases though, where it's, it's challenging to talk about a substance use disorder. I try to just ground myself and remind myself that the reason for that is that our patients have experienced profound stigma from the healthcare system around their substance use, including mistreatment by providers, including denial of services, and continue to in, in many settings. So we, we have a lot of ongoing work around culture and you know just reducing bias around addiction. And that often informs the reluctance to, to talk to us. And so it's our job as providers to create a safe, non-judgmental space to hear what patients say. And that means that, that we need to hear what they say. And, and sometimes patients say things that, as, you know, as an HIV doc, when I hear about syringe sharing, I, I feel really scared. And I, I want to make sure that my patients are at the lowest risk possible of HIV. But my job is to hear what they have to say. And then I, I like to, to, you know, broach any potentially stigmatized topic by asking a permission statement or a question. You know, would it, would it be okay if I ask you a couple of questions about any substance use? I also try to frame um, potentially 
stigmatized answers or, or questions um, around stigmatized topics in a way that normalizes a positive response. And this is something that I learned from my colleague, Dr. Dan Alford at, at BMC, who does a great scope of pain training that, that addresses some of the screening. Um, but, you know, for example, when we think about sharing syringes, if you say, do you share syringes as a yes or no question, I think we can all sort of hear the expectation of what the correct answer is and that intonation. Even worse would be, you don't share syringes, do you? But patients hear things like that and, and you hear it in practice. Um, instead, I like to frame things around, around timing. So when was the last time that, that you were injecting and you shared a syringe in one second? Or when was the last time you had sex without a condom? How long ago was the last time that you were snorting cocaine and you used a bill or a straw after someone else. And that, that really normalizes any sort of positive response and doesn't convey this expectation that patients should or shouldn't be doing something because as the provider, I, I wanna know what's actually happening so I can then provide the right counseling and, and harm reduction support and, and offer people evidence-based services, which could be PEP or PrEP um, or overdose prevention or referral to evidence-based treatments for an opioid or a stimulant use disorder. Let's get to the really positive thing. And the really positive thing is once we've made the diagnosis, uh, developed patient trust, we have great options. And if you could go over these options in, in a way so that our listeners have a real understanding of why different options are being used. And so even if we're not the ones doing it, we can encourage them, say, we're going to bring in our uh, colleagues who specialize in helping people who are using opioids to be able to stop using opioids without suffering. Absolutely. This is an area that I, one of the reasons I love doing this work is that we have medications that are incredibly effective and we need to do exactly what you're saying, which is really, um, you know, reassure our patients that if they want to change their use, if that is their goal, that we have great tools. And so we have three FDA approved medications for opioid use disorder. The first that I'll talk about is methadone. Methadone is our longest, sort of longest known medication. I, I would argue it could be considered our most effective medication for opioid use disorder because it has great data that it decreases death from opioid overdose. It also decreases all-cause mortality as well as infectious complications of opioid use disorder like HIV and hepatitis C. Methadone is a full agonist at the mu opioid receptor. And the reason that it's not more widely used or what I would say one of the challenges with methadone is that current regulations require that it is only used for opioid use disorder in federally regulated opioid treatment programs, which are also called methadone clinics. And these programs are, they're actually further regulated by states and have incredibly strict requirements for enrollment, um, for engagement and wraparound services like counseling, which you know, we, we consider when we look at the evidence to be important to offer, but, but that counseling should not be required to engage in medication for opioid use disorder. Patients also have to attend daily until they've met a certain threshold to be able to get what we call take-home doses, which allow them to not go to the clinic every single day. They're on a pretty protocolized schedule in terms of the titration of their methadone. And these guidelines and, and regulations, I should say, really have not been modernized in response to the fentanyl crisis and the reality that we are, we are working with people that are using opioids that are orders of magnitude more potent than what was around when methadone regulations were put into place you know, 30 years ago at this point or more. So I think methadone is incredibly effective treatment. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of methadone and I love to talk to my patients about it. And we actually do a lot of work lowering the barrier to methadone entry in my bridge clinic by, by offering treatment for withdrawal for up to three days while we link patients. But for many people, the logistics of presenting every day are, are a barrier and some of the other aspects of OTPs can be a barrier. 
So this, the second option that I'd like to discuss with patients is buprenorphine. It is typically co-formulated with naloxone in its sublingual form. Um, it goes by the brand name Suboxone. And that's a medication that we can prescribe in the primary care clinic, in specialty clinics. We prescribe it in our infectious disease clinic that is, is prescribed to a retail pharmacy like other outpatient medications. So patients come to the office, you assess them, you electronically prescribe your prescription the same way that you would prescribe amlodipine for blood pressure or really any other outpatient medication. It's picked up at a, at a retail pharmacy and they take it at home. Buprenorphine, unlike methadone, is a partial agonist at the mu opioid receptor, which has a few important implications. So it has a, a decreased risk of accidental overdose, which is you know, potentially a, a benefit of a buprenorphine over methadone. It also can be less potentially less potent in terms of managing withdrawal symptoms and cravings. And we're hearing more about that, again, in this third wave of the crisis, which is really focused on potent illicitly manufactured synthetics like, like fentanyl. The other challenge that, that is presented by being a partial agonist is that when we start buprenorphine, we have to wait until patients are in withdrawal already from opioids, because if, if you start it too soon, you get what's called precipitated withdrawal, where the patient experiences a sudden drop from the full binding of the full agonist of the fentanyl or heroin down to the level of partial binding from the buprenorphine. And so, you know, we used to accomplish that by having patients wait 12 hours to 24 hours after last heroin use. Once they were in moderate withdrawal, they were readily able to start buprenorphine. That's actually changed. And in the last two to three years, um, it's, it's been increasingly described that patients are having late precipitated withdrawal, switching over to Suboxone or buprenorphine, where they might wait two, three, even four days, be experiencing an incredible burden of, of physical symptoms, having very high clinical opioid withdrawal score, scores. And still, when they start buprenorphine, they get precipitated withdrawal. So, you know, in those cases, I think that that's where consulting an addiction colleague can be, can be really helpful. We do have strategies that span from very low-dose buprenorphine inductions to high-dose buprenorphine inductions that can help people get on buprenorphine safely that are transitioning from fentanyl. Um, but it's, you know, it's been a new challenge for us in the last couple of years, and that, that has decreased the acceptability of buprenorphine to a lot of patients. And then our, our third medication that I'll mention is naltrexone. So unlike buprenorphine and methadone, naltrexone is an opioid uh, a receptor antagonist or a blocker. And unlike buprenorphine and methadone, it does not yet have clear evidence of, of overdose mortality prevention. So you know, I think some more data is needed. The, the primary barrier that my patients experience to naltrexone is that you have to not have opioids bound on your receptors in order to start it, or you get that same precipitated withdrawal problem. And in the case of naltrexone, you typically have to wait to, for a week to, to start after last opioid use. And you can imagine going a week without opioid use when you're in severe withdrawal is something that's really extremely difficult to accomplish in the outpatient setting. So for that, for that reason, I, I use naltrexone much less than my patients. I really try to direct them to the medications that have clear overdose mortality prevention benefit, but there are certainly people for a variety of reasons that prefer naltrexone. And in those cases, we, you know, we try to work with them to make sure that we get them induced um, safely in a way that is tolerable, that doesn't put them through really miserable withdrawal symptoms. Sometimes that's through an inpatient medically managed withdrawal program, although there are circumstances that with, you know, with a lot of support, we can sometimes manage that outpatient as well. Well, I can't thank you enough for the uh, way you've described all this and given us a real sense of how to talk to patients and what the options are. And I think one of the things that I took away from this is that there are addiction specialists who can help us with 
what is quite tricky in trying to find uh, the right options for treating withdrawal from opioids. And you really described that so nicely. I'm fortunate that I have some great uh, addiction specialists that I can lean on, and I hope that everyone listening will find people in, in their region that are delighted to help these patients. So thank you again for joining us and for writing the beautiful in the clinic and making us much more aware of what's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, Bob, if I could follow that up, I, I think I alluded to consulting an addiction specialist because I think there's a huge, a huge role for that. I also just want to say really clearly that treating opioid use disorder is well within scope for hospital medicine providers, for primary care providers. It's incredibly rewarding work. Some of the barriers to getting getting started with doing opioid use disorder treatment as as a PCP or hospital medicine provider have actually gone down. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in the past, in order to be um, licensed to to prescribe buprenorphine, one had to do an eight-hour training and then apply for an X number. And and those requirements have actually gone down where for people treating up to 30 patients, it's possible to apply just by enrolling in a website without the requirement to do the eight hours of training. And that's really something I encourage everyone listening to do. It it takes, um, I would say it could be done in under three minutes. You need to know your license number, your DEA number, whether or not you practice at a VA, which I think we all are, you know, we all know our, our practice status. And then, you know, from there you you apply and are able to receive a an X, a DEA X number which enables you to prescribe buprenorphine. That's something that really is, um, it's part of all of our practice. You know, n- none of us say as general internists, oh, I don't I don't manage diabetes. And, and I think we need to stop accepting the status quo that people are not really taking on management of straightforward opioid use disorders. It's really a part of what we do. Patients appreciate it, it's rewarding work. And so I just encourage everyone to take a couple of minutes today to, to enroll. If you Google buprenorphine X waiver, it'll get you to, to the site to get your information in. And, and it's a, a very quick process. You can then treat up to 30 patients at a time. Thank you again. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. We're deep in the third wave of opiate use disorder uh, over the last 20 years, and that is fentanyl. Fentanyl is illegally used. It has variable potency, which makes it very dangerous for overdose deaths. It is combined with heroin, with methamphetamines, with uh, cocaine, and uh, is a huge problem leading to sharing needles and uh, infectious complications. Part of the problem is the unintended consequences of our measures to try to decrease opiate use for those who have severe chronic pain. And when they can't get their opioids from physicians, they will go onto the street. Part of this is a big problem of the introduction on the street of fentanyl because it's so addictive. The good news that we go over at the end of this podcast is that we have very good treatments for patients who want to get safely controlled from opiate use disorder. Dr. Taylor went over the options and made a plea for primary care physicians and hospitalists to become familiar with the possibilities of starting treatment for opiate use disorder in their patients. We hope that this discussion will help you better approach your patients who have opiate use disorder and 
arrange treatment for them, including learning how to treat them uh, yourselves. Thank you for listening to our podcasts. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.